Welcome to the Aussie Pets Podcast, the show dedicated to living things that aren't human, that are legal to keep, and how to improve their life living with a responsible owner. That's you. For more information, visit www.shootmypet.com.au forward slash podcast. Let's get today's show sorted with me as your host and fellow responsible pet owner, Edwin Reese. Today's episode is episode six. And we have pre-recorded this session in the studio and on the phone. I do appreciate you putting your time aside to talk to us and perhaps educate us a lot today. I'd like to say a rather unique spelling of your name. Dr. Jenna Gold has joined us today. I do hope I got that correct. G-O-L-D-T, who is a doctor in veterinary science. Welcome, Jenna. Hi, Edwin. I'm I'm a little bit excited today, uh, not only because I've just got your name said and spelt correctly. I've also got uh, you here because of you, your broad experience and a range of experiences in veterinary science. And I know that you are currently teaching veterinary nurses. Could you expand on what you do? Sure. So, yes, I did my uh, Bachelor of Veterinary Science here at Melbourne University um, and also did a Bachelor of Science in Zoology in my home country of Canada. Um, And since then I've been working in, I've worked in general practice, I've worked in emergency clinics, um, I've done a little bit of zoo work on the side and now I've focused my uh, task on management and uh, working with vet nurses. So doing some training uh, and assessing, which has been a really great experience um, and really enjoying it so far. Is the year nearly over for the the prospective vet nurses? Are they nearly finished um, 2020? Yeah, so our year ends usually at the end of November, but with COVID, we're dragging out a little bit longer um, as uh, schools have been shut, as most people know, um, and we're just starting to get back on campus to finish off some of those essential practicals. But yes, we are getting getting close to the end of our year and hoping um, hoping we'll have a better new year next year. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Well, I'm certainly doubly grateful that you've made it tonight, realising your workload. Oh, it's no problem. And, yeah. the, and the reason I'm excited is because when you get an animal, it's good to have somebody you can talk to about the stuff that you don't know. So I talk to people who own all sorts of animals and usually when I speak to them in my role, it's because there's an issue. So can you tell tell the, our listeners how vets can help them just by talking? Absolutely. So there's so much we can talk about um, from the veterinary field. So we're there for the medical aspects of your pet's health, but also we're there to give you advice that you may not know. So basic things like nutrition, housing, um, behavior issues, all of those types of things vets have knowledge behind as well as getting into the more complicated things like what are the general healthcare requirements of your pet on a daily basis, on a yearly basis, what happens if something goes wrong um, from a health perspective, what can you do to avoid those things as well. So we cover a large base um, for new owners and owners in general. So we're there to talk about anything you want to talk about animal related. Oh, that, that's so cool. So you, you'd talk to people about their basic animal requirements, such as what you said in housing. And also, can you take people through 
or can a vet take people through what they can expect from a certain type of animal? Just out of curiosity, to blow people's minds a bit, how many different types of vets are there? (laughs) Good question. Well, there's a lot. So if you can think of what kind of doctors there are for humans, our veterinary medicine has now expanded so much so that we have the exact same types of doctors for animals now that we do for humans. Now, most people are used to talking to general practitioners, so general clinicians at a general practice. That's what a large proportion of our veterinarians do. Um, but we are also we also have specialists. So I believe you've talked to an exotic specialist already. So we have vets that specialize in specific species. We have vets that work in agricultural or large animals like cattle and horses and things like that. And then we have specialists that really focus down. So we have uh, specialists in imaging like x-rays. We have specialists in cancer um, or it's called oncology in our field. Um, We have zoo specialists. We have specialists in public health. Pretty much anything you can think of, there's someone out there getting a specialty in um, and we also do things like pe- like microbiology and things like that as well. So there's a large, large range that vets cover as far as knowledge. And generally, I think people don't really realize is that a lot of the times you're asking your general practitioner to be a specialist in all of those areas. So we really have quite a large base of knowledge to uh, talk about. And as far as basic animal requirements and, you know, getting getting a new pet, we definitely have a good understanding of what you need to kind of know starting off from the ground running. Absolutely. And and you're right. I did speak to Shane from the Unusual Pet Vets. Absolutely wonderful guy. Very, uh, very good sense of humor. And he can make things like yourself sound really simple uh, and things that are quite complicated, straightforward, or it certainly seems that way when I speak with you guys. Uh, he's even gone to the extent of uh, setting up packages for specific animals. In my life as a kid, growing up on a farm, we'd get the vet in to uh, do do breeding with our cattle, to do all sorts of things, taking bloods, the same as humans. But like you said, uh, there's a vet for pretty much every animal because they're all different, aren't they? Uh, and that's why we need different vets. Absolutely. That is definitely true. So I think... Uh, Most people don't know that a general practitioner usually focuses on cats and dogs and so may not have that extra special knowledge on things like birds and reptiles, which is why those specialists exist. So um, oftentimes we'll refer you on to those specialists, but we also are asked to have a lot of that knowledge, which not all vets are necessarily confident in. But I like the idea of that um, package set up. I've seen it in a few clinics. It's something that's kind of new to our industry. And it's something that I think for those people that are a little bit cost conscious or uh, maybe that want to ensure that their pet has general coverage for for the most common things, getting a, a package from a clinic can work. But a lot of those packages too don't always cover uh, emergency situations. So you just need to be really understand what's involved in that package if you do sign up for one. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you're you're right in terms of it doesn't necessarily cover emergency. So people probably just the same as anywhere, just ask the vet. But the the key point that I liked about it, um, just to expand a little bit, is that uh, at the Unusual Pet Vets, for example, they've got uh, desexing, microchipping, 
your vet checks for a year, I think it is, and uh, starter packages of food. Also, uh, I've spoken to a couple of vets and they, uh, they encourage people to come and see them before they even get a pet to have a talk about what's involved and how long the pet's going to live, what they need to do. Uh, and and every everything that could be covered in probably a half an hour chat to a vet for, I don't know, maybe 70 bucks, 100 bucks, is what causes problems and people aren't aware of what has to be done. And they also seem to get pets which are out of their experience level. Can we talk a little bit about experience level of people getting a pet, for example, in COVID-19, a lot of people went out and got big dogs and they got um, exotic birds and cockatoos and things like this. What can you tell us about those animals? Yeah, absolutely. So this is definitely one of the common things that we see in the vet practice as well. So we see um, people wanting to get a new pet. They go out there and they adopt the first thing that looks cute in front of them, take it home and then realize they don't know anything about them. Um, Absolutely, vets can help, but there's a lot of good resources out there too. So having a chat with a vet is a great idea. Having a chat with other people who have animals is a good idea. Um, Even talking to different industries like the pet store or things like that, you can get a little bit of information. So I think what really is important, dependent on your experience level, even if you do have a lot of experience with animals, is doing a bit of research before you make that decision to go in there and get a pet. And so that's where I think people would probably appreciate some advice is, is where do we get this research from? So where do we go to look for this information? Um, so when you're getting a new pet, you want to start out by finding out what animal you want to choose. So don't just run out there and, and buy the first pet you see. Um, try and look into what do you want. And so if you're thinking about getting a cat, maybe do a little bit of research on what kind of behaviors cats have, what kind of attention do they need, what kind of feeding do they need. Um, so I've often seen um, you know, people that are vegans, they get a cat and then they want to feed their cat vegetables. Well, cats can't eat vegetables. They just can't survive that way. So Um, having a bit of understanding of what this pet is before you get it can really help to make that decision. So first thing's deciding on a species. (laughs) Well, you're right. Funny you should say that. I was standing waiting to get a coffee last weekend with my daughter and a lady came in and her dog was a bit distracted, very highly distracted. I looked at the dog and I assessed that it was actually quite trainable it's quite an intelligent dog however she kept on trying to hold these treats out and try and distract the dog and the dog wasn't paying any attention and it was a hungry it was a it was a staffy type dog which as you know would is pretty much a food driven dog usually yeah and it was just showing no interest so i said to her what what are you um giving your pet as the treat to distract it and she said oh it's a um it's a vegan uh, I think it was a beetroot chip. She says, I don't want to give my dog any meat because I want it to be vegan. And I said, oh, okay, is there a reason that you're giving your dog vegetables to try and train it? And she said, yeah, because the dog's a rescue. It's a problem dog. It attacks and bites other dogs. And I said, well, <laughs> you may want to have some advice from somebody uh, regarding what you're treating your dog with because I'm not sure... If that is that a good treat for a dog, a um, 
a beetroot chip to, to, to train it and to distract it? That's it. Maybe that's it. So, uh, and that's, that's the issue is if you're not sure dogs actually have a lot of really common toxicities, beetroots isn't, isn't one of them luckily. Um, and probably <laughs> she was okay, but you just don't know until, until you're in that situation. So absolutely. Before you go feeding your pet something that you're not sure of, you definitely want to find out if it's okay. Right. Absolutely. I had to leave because my daughter kept on digging me in the ribs and saying, shut up, dad, shut up, dad. Um, <laughs> it, and and the reason that I, I discuss all this is because people would like to avoid having to pay too much money for huge bills. So Absolutely. And the, I think... The, what strategy would you suggest? Yeah, so absolutely. I think doing that research, finding out a little bit about the pet that you are getting beforehand will help you to kind of understand what it needs. Uh, taking advantage of any uh, opportunities that vet clinics have. So bringing your pet in for annual or regular checkups is actually going to help you to avoid some of these costly um, vet bills because, you know, we're designed to look for those problems that you guys may not be able to see yourself. So if I bring my cat in and I've never had a cat before, um, my vet might be able to find something like fleas or an ear infection before it becomes a big problem for that animal. So that preventative care is what we call it, is really important. And that annual health check is really important to make sure that your pet is staying healthy, so that we don't end up with these big emergency situations or we don't end up with an infection that's been there for months at a time. So I think that's one of the, the best things you can do is just talk to your vet on a regular basis um, and that will help to avoid you know those big costs of emergency situations not all of them but some of them and then just being prepared so I really am a huge fan of pet insurance if you can find the right one for you pet insurance will definitely help to save you money long term especially if you have an animal um, so something more like a purebred animal some of these animals we have know have genetic uh, diseases that come along with them or genetic disorders that may show up in their lifetime. So having something like pet insurance will help to cover that cost for you or just planning ahead. Yeah, just planning ahead, really. So so that's that's interesting. I'll, I'll pick up a, a point you mentioned there regarding the having a purebred animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, having ha- Well, I've, I've shown purebred animals in, in dog shows, but that's for confirmation. Is it a good way to have a, a bulletproof pet to have have a, a purebred animal? From what you just said, there's probably some things people need to think about. Absolutely. So I would say there's no such thing as a bulletproof pet because every animal is an individual. And it's the same like with us, you know, you may be healthy when you're young and some of us may develop things like kidney disease when we're older or heart disease. And there's no way to know that when, when they're a pup. No, well, I go for a yearly checkup myself to the vet, to the human exactly. vet. Um, <laughs> Hopefully you, you not hit... to the vet. <laughs> <laughs> the human vet, the doctor. And uh, the, the purpose isn't because I'm actually sick or got any illness. It's because I'd just like to know if there's something I can't tell. Because Absolutely. when we live with something every day, we live with our pet every day, it, something may not be obvious, whereas a, an ex, a trained expert could pick it up really quickly. I had one of my first guests on Aussie, Aussie Pets podcast was Brad from Canine Services International. He's got a lot of information. He trains a lot of dogs that aren't purebred dogs. 
And yep. he's got really strong uh, opinions on whether people should have a purebred dog or not because purebred dogs can have really major flaws and there's some things you shouldn't do with them. So Absolutely. can you share some, some facts yeah. uh, on a purebred animal uh, compared to having a crossbred dog, cat or chicken? So yeah. having a purebred, how would that compare to have a bit of a mongrel in terms of treating it a vet and, and problems they can have? Right. So the, the biggest issue with purebred animals, now not all of them are, are bad, um, but there are definitely a lot of um, issues with purebreds. And one of the issues with purebreds that we see, it's because they've been bred for years and years down this line. Um, we're refining the genetics so that we get certain traits. So one of the biggest um, and most popular breeds at the moment would be our little French Bulldogs or our Pugs. And they've been bred to the point where their noses are so compressed on their faces that they actually have a lot of physical breathing problems. So this is a very specific, uh, this is not all purebreds have these breathing issues, but for Pugs and these uh, short-nosed animals like French Bulldogs, it's gotten a little bit carried away with the breeding so our animals like pugs and French bulldogs, um, those specific breeds of dogs, we've actually bred their noses are so flat, they actually struggle to breathe and they get this respiratory issue um, where they get a lot of swelling in their airways and then really struggle to breathe and they, and they really struggle to breathe in on a day-to-day -day basis. So these dogs have been bred for this purpose to have the short nose. We've kind of gotten a bit carried away and the nose is short now that some of these dogs actually need three or four surgeries to get them back to normal breathing. And this is all to do with breeding animals. That's one of the things we see is breeding for specific traits. The traits have actually gone, gone too far um, and we see these physical uh, problems as a result. But then we also have um, genetic lines. So with purebred animals, we're breeding them for a specific genetic line, a specific um, family line, and with that come diseases. So genetic diseases can transmit from one, uh, like a father, to the son, and so on and so on. Just continue down that line. And as we breed further and further into this pure red line, we start to see these diseases popping up really commonly. So one of the most common breeds in Australia that I see is cavity. King Charles Spaniel, and they're really prone to heart disease, and the heart disease is a genetic issue. So this is one of the things we can avoid if by um, a mutt animal. So a mutt animal is just any old genetics mixed there. So we don't tend to see these genetic issues as common um, with these mutt or mixed breed animals. So you you might get a, a problem with the heart of a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel uh, where they've got a genetic predisposition because of their breeding for the big eyes and the ears and the legs and the coat. That's it. But they haven't, they haven't looked at the heart. So if you get a dog like the Chow, is it the Chow, the ones that have trouble with the eyes? Is that, so the, all um, the skin folds are their eye? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you have to be careful and probably talk to a vet or a specialist in animal breeding who who knows about these things uh, because your friend might be su suggesting hey 
why don't you get um, a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel, which is awesome, but you want to know how long that dog's likely to live for. Uh, you might have three or four years trouble-free, but then when the heart gives problems, you've got real problems. Lots of things that you can do to help avoid problems with the animal that you're purchasing. And and being aware and being a responsible person and looking for equally responsible and ethical breeders is going to deal with a lot of that. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Now, in my uh, in my day-to-day, I go and I listen to people and listen to them about the end result of problems. And there's a common theme. A lot of people say, look, the dog's a rescue. So I'll go to a dog attack and they'll say, oh, the dog's a rescue. It's never done this before. A lot of people's friends are telling them you should get a rescue, which to a certain extent I, I would go along with and endorse that a dog should get another chance. Now, in terms of checks and balances, what can people do with a rescue and is it the best choice to get a rescue for your first pet? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, getting a rescue as your first pet, unless it's a puppy or a kitten, um, may not be the best option for you unless you've had good pet experience for you in the past. Now, cats are a little bit different because cats, you know, they kind of keep to their own. They're a little bit more independent. But with a dog, um, dogs in shelters, not all of them have issues, but a lot of them are there because they've been neglected, they've been abused, they've been left um, to be rehomed. And again, it's not every dog that you see in, in a shelter or a rescue environment. Um, but you need to be aware that that animal is coming with a history. So that animal may have a history that's known or it may not. And so you need to have a good discussion with the rescue provider that you're looking at to see what kind of things they do to behaviors assess that animal before it gets adopted. So are they doing any assessment to make sure it doesn't have triggers or um, it hasn't shown signs of aggressive behavior? Um, and then also looking a little bit more into maybe what type of animal you're getting again. Uh, and what I found is when I've been in, in shelters or rescue environments, the staff know a lot about the animal. So if you're going into a rescue environment and you're going to look for a specific breed or a specific animal, you may be a little bit disappointed what I usually suggest going in for a rescue animal, if that's something you're interested in doing, is talking to the staff and telling them what kind of pet you want or what you're looking for, and they can help to match you with an appropriate animal. Um, so especially first starting out, or if you don't have a lot of experience with animals, puppies and kittens are a pretty safe bet because they haven't had much history. But when you're getting into those an adult animals that are rehomed, getting some information from the people that have them talking to them about what their procedures are um, can really help to save you from having an animal that's, um, as you said, maybe turned aggressive. Um, and I think also once you have adopted that animal, you need to look into potentially doing some behavior um, assessment or behavior training with that animal. So not assuming it's going to be perfect when you bring it in the door, you might have to do a bit of work with that animal to, to get it used to being in a home. Absolutely. And one of the, main uh, issues that's come to light in the COVID lockdown is people getting rescues. Uh, now, I'm, I'm going to talk about greyhounds. I'm not saying that all greyhounds are a problem, 
but I have seen a lot of greyhounds that are a problem uh, because I get to see the, the worst result. People who haven't had pets before are getting rescue greyhounds. Now, from my limited experience, uh, being a boy from the bush, greyhounds race. And they teach greyhounds to race by getting them small squeaky things that, get, that move fast. So when a person's looking at getting a greyhound, keeping in mind that the legislation's changed now that greyhounds don't have to be muzzled in public all the time, what should people be aware of when they're looking at getting a greyhound for their first pet or should they get a greyhound yeah. for their first pet? Yeah, mm. so uh, again, there's there's always good and bad animals out there. So a lot of it is, is looking into where you're getting it from. Um, going through a reputable program like the GAP program can be good, um, but you know things do do get missed. Doesn't matter where you go through. There's always that animal that may be better than it looks, or may be worse than it looks on the surface. Greyhounds are animals that are really good if you don't want an animal that does a lot. So they sleep about 16 hours a day. They're like cats when they're indoors. But you're right, they have some big problems. And one of the big problems is, yes, they're trained to chase small, fluffy animals. So it's in their natural instinct to do so. So if you're a home full of cats, or even if you have a small dog or other pets in the household, they're probably not that great an option. They're also trained in a pack mentality. So often they'll fight other larger dogs as well. Um, and I don't think a lot of people realize that, um, that they get this pack mentality. If they get in with uh, another dog that's bigger, they might, they might attack them as well. They also have a number of health issues, such as re they're really prone to dental disease. So they, they always have, uh, a lot of them have really bad teeth. And I've seen some dogs in my clinic where I've had to do a dental on them every three months. Um, that's how bad their teeth are. And that's not just a little bit of, of bad teeth. That's really bad teeth where we're having to clean all of this dirt and debris off their teeth every three months, even though the owner is doing everything possible at home. So greyhounds are really good for a specific type of person. So someone who really wants an animal that likes to sleep most of the day and then run really fast in short bursts. Um, but they're not for everyone. And I think it is definitely worth noting that they can be lovely animals and they, they can definitely be really good pets. Um, but there are a lot of uh, pitfalls with greyhounds. Now, that being said, I think it's really important the work that everyone's doing to try and, and rehome these racing greyhounds uh, or ex-racing greyhounds so that we're not leading to an industry of waste. But um, yeah, you need to take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt. They seem gentle around humans, but there's a lot of underlying behavior things that can come up. And if we go and talk to a vet like yourself or listen to the Aussie Pets podcast then people would be equipped to set their new greyhound up for success instead of having the greyhound, which is quite a tall dog. It's not very heavy, but if you don't know how to control dogs very well, the greyhound's neck and head are unusual in that the head is much smaller than the neck and they easily slip collars, whatever collar you got on. And if they really want to get to a bigger dog or a smaller dog, and I'm here to tell you they can, and they do, it's not good in either case. And the greyhound, interestingly, comes off usually the winner, but sometimes the greyhound bites off more than they can chew. Pardon the pun. Uh, so I think that that's food for thought 
if you're really thinking of getting a, a another pet, you want to know the history, don't you? You want to ask about the history before you get the pet into your own house. Absolutely. The history and, and their basic behaviors, um, so what, what they're designed for. So being a specific breed, they've been designed that way for a reason. So understanding why they've been designed for that shape, that speed, that um, that attack mode, everything like that is important in understanding how to control them as well. Yes, and and exactly as you've spoken, it turns out in pretty much every interview for a serious attack of any breed that you've told me about or I've listened to vets talk about, there is a characteristic which is very common and the, and the greyhound's a beautiful dog. Very quiet, very placid. They don't need to go for big walks. They're pretty happy chilling out yeah. until they see the neighbor's cat. <laughs> then it's on. That's it. Um, yeah, so I'm going, to put a, I'm going to put a very careful red line through my next question because I think, I think I know the answer, or maybe I'll ask anyway. Um, with the social websites and bulletin boards, uh, for example, Gumtree and uh, Get a Pet, Forget Your Vet, and things like that, <laughs> websites where people just look at uh, picking up pets which aren't microchipped, which have got unknown history, it's not a good thing, right? Is that what you're saying? Hundred I would say 100% on that. Um, if if it's not something with a reputation behind it, like the uh, Amer- American Kennel Association or Australian Kennel Association where it's it's got reputable breeders listed. If you're just going to somewhere, even just like Gumtree to pick up a pet, there's a real chance that the animals come from um, a neglected or abusive background. And that's what we're trying to avoid in, in it. And I think Australia has done a really good job of this, is trying to avoid um, these websites from popping up. Um, so putting restrictions on so Gumtree's put restrictions on that you can only sell an animal on there if it's had all of its um, vaccinations, microchipping, you've got proof of all of that. So putting some of those restrictions on makes it harder for people to get on the or start creating these websites and selling what we call backyard puppies or puppy meal pu- puppies, um, where they're just being bred to go into homes and they're not really being cared for. Um, and then we're putting the, the onus back into the industry. So looking at rescues, looking at vets um, to rehome animals and having that um, place where people can ask questions before they they um, adopt that animal. So ask, have, being able to ask someone a history or ask them about behaviors before you even start to look at that animal. You're on the front foot because from uh, saying on the front foot, a friend of mine's had, he's taken two steps forward because he thought he's being clever and getting a cheap, super cute little dog. He's done it three times. Yeah. <laughs> Every time he's gone to a puppy farm, uh, he's gone out to a puppy farm, he's driven two and a half hours and picked up the dog from the same person once it was out the front of a TV shop and the next time it's in a McDonald's car park. Uh, I'm not making this up. Oh. And um, yeah, G'day, Con, if you're listening. And what happened then is he got this dog home, this wonderful, they, they really are beautiful dogs, and they all had to have serious surgery. We're talking thousands because the dogs are bred for cuteness, in this case to make money, yeah. and they're not bred to live a long, healthy life. So the people who are breeding them are setting them up to fail before the people who even bought the dog. But people still do it, so you know, have a think. If you're going to get one of these dogs, you, you might be inheriting uh, a lot of tears. 
and it may not be the big bargain that you're uh, thinking of. Have you got any stories like that you can share yeah, with us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a few. I've got a just, few. Just, just keep about 20 or 30. Then. Yeah, 20 or 30. <laughs> 20 or 30. Well, I mean, one of the big things is people always go, well, I knew it was a bad place to buy a puppy, but I felt so bad for the puppy that I bought it. So that's one thing that I hear very commonly, oh. and that's what they want, right? So they, they want you to come out and they want you to buy their puppy. So however way they can get you to do that, even if it's just guilting leaving the animal there, um, they're going to make money. But I have actually a good story about internet purchases. It's one that I heard. I'm not sure if it's a fable or not, but I thought it was pretty funny. So um, this client came in with their with their new puppy to the vet clinic and told the vet, I'm worried about my puppy. My puppy's not growing. So the vet's like, okay, puppy not growing. What could it be? What could it be? Came into the room, looked over the animal, did an exam, and finally at the end said, well, I think I found your problem with your puppy. And they said, oh, yeah, what's that? Why isn't it growing? And he said, the vet said, well, first off, that's a guinea pig. <laughs> so again this is doing your research and i would agree a little jack russell puppy looks an awful lot like a guinea pig and vice versa so it's easy to do if if you're if you're not sure um but yeah so that's definitely one that i've uh heard um yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> and it's all about research isn't it so if clearly if if somebody's going to Look at it, that person. If it was a real story, and it could well be real, um, if they had just gone to a vet and spent seventy bucks, they wouldn't have got a guinea pig for two thousand dollars or something. And there, there's there's an urban an urban legend floating around Melbourne, which has got um, a person saying, um, "I found I found a cat. Uh, I've got it at my place, and I hope the owner can come pick it up. It's really aggressive, yep. and it's got a it's got a pot got a picture of a." A possum in a in a in a cage. <laughs> so yeah. you try. Not far off. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, possums do do tend to be aggressive. So look, set yourself up for a success as well, not just your pet. Uh, go out there and be responsible. And uh, before you buy an animal, have a look at what it looks like as a puppy, uh, as a as a baby. <laughs> and oh, that would have been so funny, <laughs> a guinea pig instead of, instead of a little puppy. And and I think. Um, you know, I want to talk just a quick, quick bit because we've we've just been rabbiting on here, and and I'm I'm sure that there's people out there, uh, like myself, uh, 50 years ago or just under 50, maybe 42 years ago, I, I really wanted to be a vet, um, and a lot of kids do say, I, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, well, everybody loves vets, so I want to be a vet. What does a little girl or little boy who's listening to the podcast tonight or or today uh, do, which is going to get them sorted out? in high school and through the university to become a vet? Sure. Well, any experience is good experience. So get out there and do some volunteering, um, starting off with your own pet. So do some research. If you're, if you're allowed to have a pet at home, definitely get your own pet. It's a, it's a good learning experience if you, if you can and do that research before you get it. But as you're going through school, um, what I'd suggest for high school, it's really important to consider subjects like biology, maths, even physics. They all have places in veterinary medicine, um, especially biology. And I think that's missed a little bit in this. And now our veterinary industry is changing a little bit. So in Australia, it used to be that you could go straight into a Bachelor of Veterinary Science from high school, but that's actually starting to change a little bit. So now 
um, usually you need to do a few years of an undergraduate course um, in animal studies and then apply to be in vet school. Um, now, I went international, so I did my studies overseas. So it's a lot easier to get into a vet school overseas <laughs> than it is to in your own country because you can think about it. Um, there's a lot of students um, trying to get into their local university. And so it's going to be pretty competitive. Whereas if you go international, um, you're paying them to go to the school. So it costs a lot more, but you're more probably more likely to get in. Um, other things to consider are just getting that experience. So like I said before, going out and volunteering, you can start off if you're really young, you know, with your own pet, just looking into things, maybe getting a, a job in a pet store, volunteering in, in a vet clinic to see if you actually like what the industry is, um, and then working your way through. And if you find, you know, that being a veterinarian is not necessarily something that you're interested, there's jobs like vet nursing. And there's jobs like pet store, there's working on farms, there's working in zoos, there's lots of different areas you can go um, in our industry. So you're not limited to working in a vet clinic either, which is really great. It opens a lot of doors to the animal industry. It, it is a big industry. And when people do the right thing and they prepare themselves to be around animals and to have and, and, and love animals... It can be a wonderful life for them and for the animal. Uh, I know that, yeah, I know that uh, with teaching, there's a lot of different places and entry points, as you just pointed out, uh, out of high school. You're teaching currently at a vet nurse training program. Is that, R sorry, was that RMIT or Swinburne? No, I, I work, remember. I'm actually currently at Box Hill Institute, um, which is a TAFE. I missed. Yeah. I missed on both cases. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. I don't think we actually yeah. talked about that, so that's fine. Yeah. Let, let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, so I currently work at Box Hill Institute, and I teach currently, I'm teaching in the certificate for in veterinary nursing, and I actually run a little veterinary clinic for the students there as well. Um, but yes, we get a lot of interest in how do I get into vet nursing or how do I get into, into the veterinarian field? Um, and there's this great program called VETIS in Australia, which is vets in or vocational education training in schools. And so when you're in high school, you can actually go and do a TAFE course. Um, and I think this is really great. So you're going to come out of high school with a certificate that gets you on the right path into animal studies. So the one that we typically do um, at our TAFE is called a certificate two in animal studies. So that would be kind of your first entry into studying animal sciences specifically. Then from there, you can go into all sorts of different certificates. So you can go into certificate threes and onto different areas. You can go into vet nursing. But having a little certificate behind you gives you a leg up on the industry because uh, the vet nursing industry in Melbourne is actually quite competitive at the moment. Uh, and again, getting into vet is a little bit competitive as well. So you need to kind of have a little bit of a leg up if you want to want to go local in your uh, local state. So there's lots of pathways getting into vet, the certificate two or certificate three in animal studies. And then you can go into vet nursing or you can apply to university if you want to be a veterinarian and do your first few years of an undergrad in science and then move on. Um, into the veterinarian uh, course. 
And then beyond that, there's more study that you can do to, to become specialists and so on. So lots of different pathways. And even you, Edwin, you've gone through some of the pathways in the animal studies field being in, uh, being in your current role. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Look, I've, I've done um, up to certificate uh, fours and, and some advanced stuff with relating to animals, uh, which are domestic animals. Um, but in a previous life, I had a lot of experience with uh, farm animals. Yeah, right. You'd call them large, probably large animals. They're not little tiny dogs and cats. They're probably like cattle, horses, pigs and ducks and chickens. Very different and as you said, you really need to have a specialist vet for each of those. And I've got a friend who's a vet for a company that um, deals with chickens. Yeah. And they've got tens of thousands of chickens. And so they need a special vet. So Anthony works for um, a company up in Brisbane. And then I, I know that there's vets who deal with each of those animals, I've already said. And then there's the unusual pet vets who are an extension of the vet training from what I understand who specialize in reptiles and exotic species, that you actually have studied zoology. And zoology, again, is a massive field relating to often exotic animals and possibly animals that are in a zoo or a special uh, pet uh, branch, I guess you could say, where that people have got ownership and they've got permits to hold exotic animals. So can you tell us a little bit about these people? Because I guess they'd be interesting who actually own exotic animals and need to have a zoologist to help them deal with animals. Yeah, so um, exotic pet owners um, are amazing people. Um, they have such passion towards the animals that they look after and they have such good knowledge. They actually know so apart from the unusual pet vets that are specializing in exotics, they actually probably know a lot more about housing and environment and behavior than some of your vets do. So they're a really good resource for knowledge. Um, some of these exotic pet owners, usually you generally need a, a special license to hold them. Um, and yes, as a zoologist, you know, we can look at housing animals and um, looking after the care of wild animals and things like that. Um, but zoology is a, a lot bigger of a, a subject than just that. So I, I think everybody kind of has a bit of a misconception that if you become a zoologist, you become a zookeeper. Um, and that is one of the pathways that you can go. But I actually went a different way with my zoology degree. I did field research. So I actually went out in the field um, and studied turtles in their natural environment, chasing them around ponds, doing measurements. Um, recording um, their clutch numbers, so egg numbers and things like that. So there's a lot of different areas into into zoology as well, which I think is a whole other <laughs> topic we could get into um, on, on, a, on an occasion. I think it's, again, it's, it's getting to know the animal. So any species you want to look at owning, you know, cats and dogs are probably the most common, but it doesn't mean you, can, you can't learn about these exotic animals. I think from that standpoint, the information is just a little bit more difficult to get. And we're still learning a lot about these animals and the care of them in a captive environment. So finding someone, if it's a zoologist or if it's um, someone who's you know, really good at caring for these animals or talking to your exotic vet, um, can give you a good understanding of what those specific animals need 
and their specific requirements. And usually with these exotic animals, a lot of it has to do with the environment that they're in. So what's their housing like? What's their temperature like? Um, what food are you giving them? All of those types of things are a huge impact on their general health and well-being. So if the kids are listening, and I think that's how we got onto this little tangent, if you're listening and you, you love animals and you're thinking of getting a pet, maybe go and do your mowing round and save the money up and go and spend some time with a vet, uh, pay for a consult before you get an Aussie pet. And you could have a, a wonderful time with an Aussie pet, which is, again, being responsible and having uh, an animal as part of your life, not just a matter for me, it's not just a matter of owning an animal, it's a part of sharing your life with that animal and making sure that you both exist in the space. Jenna, absolutely wonderful that you've uh, held up your dinner to come and talk with us this evening. I'm well aware of what you're having for dinner tonight, so I don't want to keep you any longer. <laughs> and <laughs> and you've, you've given us so many contacts regarding um, different schools you can do training at, uh, if you want to be doing the certificate twos, I think you mentioned, then you led on to saying at Box Hill TAFE, there's a there's a course that you're teaching. And then there's um, pathways into vet science. There's um, another pathway you can go overseas if you want to do things quicker or my goodness, my head's spinning. There's so much information. <laughs> uh, do you reckon you could help us out by uh, perhaps just shooting through an email a list of all these contacts and I'll, I'll put them at the bottom of the podcast. Sure. Absolutely. I can do that. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Aussie Pets podcast. If you would like more information on any of our stories or would like to know how to get involved and share your own story, then head over to join our Facebook group, Aussie Pets podcast, or you could simply follow the links through your podcast to our own website and that of any of our guests. We also have historical podcasts, which you're welcome to have a browse through. A lot of information from amazing people. It's all shared because they want to make a difference to the lives of Aussie pets and their owners. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or whoever your provider is, and leave an awesome review. Don't forget, as ever, we'll see you later.